whistleblower. God, that word is used quite a bit these days. That's my nothing personal word of the day. Whistleblower. Who am I talking about? God, we could be talking about anybody, anytime. We're talking about Pedro Martinez, the former Hall of Fame pitcher. Pitch for the Red Sox, pitch for the Mets. Pedro Martinez was uh, not much bigger than I am, a couple inches, 5'9". I think we listed him. He was listed at 5'10". What made Pedro so amazing, he had hands that made a baseball look like a ping-pong ball in his hand, and he had fingers that were bent in a way, so when you would shake his hand, it would feel almost inappropriate because his hand would envelop your hand, and because his fingers were curled in a way that if you're not watching the show right now, you're listening, his fingers went in like three different directions, the way it looks when you jam your finger on a basketball, that it looks like it's permanently bent and you try to straighten it but can't. And the tip of his finger would go one way, then the first knuckle to the second knuckle another way, and then below the middle knuckle yet another way. And what it did was it made the ball spin tremendously well. He was one of the players who actually stood up and said last year the balls were different in Major League Baseball, and he could tell by the seams. He was a big-time seam guy, S-E-A-M guy because he would use the seams and his crazy fingers to get spin on the ball that would make him unhittable. He decided, why not? I'm in the Hall of Fame. I'm going to weigh in on the sign-stealing scandal. And so he did. He called Mike Fires a bad teammate. He said that Mike Fires, I think it's E-I-I-R-S or I-E-R-S, and I think it's pronounced Fires, not Fears. But what I do know is he's the guy we remember. He threw it. By accident, Giancarlo Stanton hit him in the face. Not as bad as Kermit Washington and Rudy Tomjanovich, but bad enough that Stanton had to get a lot of work done. Still handsome. In any case, Pedro Martinez calls out fires and says, listen, keep it in the clubhouse. So I've had a lot of people contact me today, and that's why I'm starting with it as my word of the day. A lot of people contacting me at David P. Sampson. They're saying, listen, we cannot do this to whistleblowers. This is why people stay quiet, because they fear for their jobs. They fear for their popularity. They don't want to come forward because of the repercussions. Pedro Martinez, Jessica Mendoza of the Mets said something as well. By the way, every player is thinking the same thing. But that's the essence of a whistleblower. That's why we call it a whistleblower. When you blow a whistle, are you trying to do it in a very inconspicuous manner? Are you trying to do it like Kate Winslet on Titanic when she's about to be rescued and you take your last breath and you blow on the whistle and it goes... No. A whistleblower by definition. I have no idea how our great microphones here in the studio even got that sound effect. A great whistleblower does it loudly, pointedly, knowing the ramifications, knowing that he or she is going to be scrutinized. Whistleblowers, they're necessary for progress in baseball. There are ramifications. Surprising that Pedro Martinez decided to go public. My guess is he's not the last one. Word of the day, whistleblower. Speaking of whistleblowing, speaking of baseball and sign-stealing scandals, the New York Metropolitans, for the second time this season, maybe for the second time in the history of this show, as I appreciate your loyalty by rating and reviewing, have hired a new manager. 
Yes, stop the presses. Break the news. I've never seen news break like this today. The news was broken by Brody Van Wagen and the actual GM. That's not called breaking news. That would be the New York Mets released a statement today that Luis Rojas has been hired as the manager of their team. Or a statement. Mets general manager Brody Van Wagenen said today that Luis Rojas would be the new manager, was hired to be the new manager. Well, funny enough, because the Mets are the Mets, and for all you Mets fans out there, even if you are a friend of Coca, you're looking at your team right now saying, are you kidding me? Because Van Wagenen announced that he is finalizing a multi-year agreement to name Louis Rojas as manager of the Mets. Before I talk about Rojas, who he is, why he was the obvious choice, even though I got it wrong and thought it would be Mulins, their bench coach, or Eduardo Perez, I missed that way to see. Loyal listeners know what I'm talking about. But you're saying, my God, you're 40 minutes early. I know, I'll do the wait to sees later. Don't worry. Brody Van Wagenen, as a GM, you cannot announce ever that you are in the middle of negotiating with your manager. You cannot announce that you're finalizing a contract. If I'm Luis Rojas, I'm demanding extra money. I'm demanding an extra year. I'm demanding extra perks. I'm demanding that I get special seats right next to Wilpon during the game. Because Wagonen just went public saying he's finalizing a deal. There's no way he's stupid enough to not have a done contract before an announcement. In which case, why wouldn't he just announce that we have finalized a deal? Why put it in the present tense instead of the past tense? Is it possible because he knows that Rojas so desperate to become a manager that there's no way that he would ever ask for anything more than what the Mets would offer and he'll just say yes? Is it possible that Luis Rojas is just a pansy who will take whatever's given to him? Well, if you know his father like I know his father, I'm not sure that he's a pansy unless he got genetics from the other side of the tracks. Luis Rojas' father's Philippe Alou. Philippe Alou, you may know him as the father of Moises Alou, the father of new Mets manager Luis Rojas. I know Felipe Alou as the first manager I ever had in the game in Montreal in the 2000 season. Philippe Alou is the first manager I ever fired in this game in 2001. When I brought him up to the office, he was fired in the office of uh, the GM, Jim Beatty, and I were in a room. We call up Philippe Alou in May of 2001 because we had to fire him because we thought we'd be better and we weren't. I'm winking. We actually just had to hire Jeff Torborg, who our owner wanted to have as manager. And when owner wants a manager, owner gets a manager. So we bring Philippe Alou upstairs. He had heard rumors because, of course, he had heard rumors because we weren't going to just surprise him. Philippe Alou was beloved in Montreal. We wanted it to sort of be out there a bit. Philippe Alou comes up, and I kid you not. He walks into the room where we're firing him, and he's got his company car keys. He has his ID to get into Olympic Stadium. He's got the season tickets that he gets as part of his contract for the rest of the season. Back then, they were paper tickets. He comes in. He sits down. We can't say a word. He drops the stuff on the desk. (laughs) And we look at him and say, hey, Felipe. I said, hey, Felipe, how you doing? Have a seat. And he looked at me in a very grumpy way. We had fired his bench coach before, a guy named 
uh, Louis Pujols, no relation to Albert, was a bench coach, best friend of his, and that was our shot across the bow. Anytime you see a bench coach fired, that is simply a way of telling your manager that he's next. So we say to, I say to Felipe, listen, Felipe, we appreciate everything you've meant to Montreal. I just want to tell you that uh, we're going in another direction. Philippe Alou didn't say a word. He pointed at the crap he had left on the desk. He stood up and he walked out of the room. That was it. I didn't see Philippe Alou for years until he was working for the Giants. Years later, he was working for the Giants as their manager and then assistant. And I got a chance to uh, see him. He was managing the Giants when we beat him in 2003. I'm not saying that didn't make me happy. But what does make me happy is that his son has an opportunity, who is a great guy. But why did the Mets hire Louis Rojas when he was going to be their quality control coach? Let me tell you what he was for this season and last season. It's something called a quality control coach. That is a made-up name by new Ivy League graduates or other such youngins in the game who are trying to come up with these new titles, thinking that maybe that gives them a sense of import. We are the quality control people. When I say quality control, I think of one thing. I think of fruit of the loom. I think of my underwear that was inspected by number five. That's quality control. I don't want strings. I don't want holes. And I want plenty of padding just in case. Quality control in a baseball team is slightly different. Basically, they are the conduit between the front office and the dugout. It's a fancy word of someone put in to make sure that the front office and everything they want done is done in the clubhouse. However, you put someone in there who is super close to the players, who the players trust and believe in, who when the quality control coach gives information to the players, they don't believe he's a pigeon for the front office. They believe that he's someone who has the player's interests in mind. And what makes me smile about the whole concept of quality control is that if you wanted him to be your manager, you would have hired him before Carlos Beltran. But in typical Mets fashion, they hire Beltran, they have to fire Beltran, they've got a new bench coach in Hensley Mullins, who is obviously associated with Carlos Beltran. So either way, you promote Mullins or you let the new manager hire a bench coach. But what the Mets are doing is leaving the entire coaching staff intact. So Luis Rojas, picture this, okay? You work in your company. You work for someone. All of a sudden, you get called in by your boss's boss. And you are told by your boss's boss that you are now going to be your boss's boss. You then have to go in to see your boss and explain that I am now your boss. Not that comfortable. And if you're not used to how to deal with the corporate culture or the structure or you're not the perfect people person to communicate this type of message, it can be M-E-S-S-Y. So Louis Rojas has to go in and talk to Mullins, who was not his choice as bench coach, make him his bench coach, which is the most important relationship in the dugout, somehow make it all work for a Mets team that underperformed, and on top of that, take a team that's expected to win to save Brody's job in a division where they're clearly behind the Phillies, the Braves, and the Nationals. All in all, when I think about what's going on in New York, I think it's the New York Mets, and it's not great. But they're not alone. They for sure are not alone. We've, uh, we've had a lot of content on this pod 
I want to I want to mention. Obviously, please follow me on Twitter, David P. Sampson. You know, we ask you to rate and review. You can figure it out. Give the five star rate, and then you can write a review. And what people are starting to do, we're going to do a bonus pod at the end of every month. One pod each month where we're going to answer questions that you put in your review. We've gotten a bunch of great ones already. The first pod at the end of January is actually oversubscribed. But if I get a better question, I'll bump someone else's. So rate it, review it on Apple. Ask a question, Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it. And one of the things that we've had a lot of content with this pod is obviously the sign-stealing scandal. And we've told you what we do on this show is we explain what should be going on, what did go on, what was meant to go on. Jim Crane is the owner of the Houston Astros. And, uh, boy, he's had a tough run. He's just had a tough run. So here's what he did last night. He won an award in Houston as executive of the year. I'm not laughing. He deserves it. They made the World Series, almost won it. When our team was named Team of the Year and we were Executives of the Year, it's because we won the World Series. We were no smarter in 03 than we were in 09. We weren't any stupid, more stupid in 03 than we were in 09 or the other way. So it's really based on performance and result. Jim Crane becomes Executive of the Year, and then he decides that he's going to meet the media and talk about the scandal. He knows by watching Nothing Personal that when he met the media with his press conference after he fired Hinch and Lunau, his president of baseball ops and his manager, that he didn't do a great job, wasn't very prepared. So he decided to do a scrum with the media just off the top of his head. And here's what he said. He said, here's what I think is going to happen. I think that spring training, we're going to get the players together And I believe the players are going to address all of the press and they're going to address them as a group of players in solidarity, arm in arm. Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. And everything's going to be great because they'll say, I'm sorry. That's your plan, Jim? Well, wait a minute. He was asked, why wait till spring training? And Jim Crane gave the perfect owner answer who doesn't know the first thing about the logistics of his team or about how to run a team. He said, listen, it's off season. How do we get everyone together? We can't possibly get everyone together. Let me explain. Were the players just in Houston for Fan Fest by chance? Did we do an entire segment about how bad Altuve and Bregman were at Fan Fest? Did we not roast them for being ill-prepared and for saying the exact wrong thing? Were they not all together? And then two days, three days later, you're meeting the media, Jim. I'm getting so excited. My chin keeps hitting the microphone. I'm excited. Give me a break. It's exciting. Did you not have your whole team together? But you were ill-prepared, got called out for it. So two days later, you say, don't worry. We're all going to get together to discuss what to say. There'll be an apology forthcoming, and everything will be fine. It's too late, said Carol King. It's too late. You had a chance to get your team together now. All you're doing is adding a distraction that your new as yet unnamed manager is going to have to deal with. My question is this. What are you going to have your players say? Are they going to admit that they were stealing signs? Because you did 
The owner said, we are going to apologize for what we did. The players have never admitted it. Rob Manford has come out and said this was a player-centric operation. Of course, only GMs and managers have been fired. No suspensions for players. No fines for players. Why is that? Well, it's actually sort of simple. And this is going to segue. I'm combining two things that I want to talk about. So you want to talk to Samson. That is a, that's not what we do at the end of the month. That's from reviewing and asking questions. So you want to talk to Samson is when you will give me a DM. You will at DM me, at David P. Samson. Give me a question. People wanted to understand what went on today. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal by Jared Diamond who talked about certain of the things that are going on with the sign-stealing scandal. And he gave a story, totally true, saying that the reason why no players were disciplined is that they were granted immunity by MLB. That's a fancy word. You see it on all your TV shows. What does it mean to be granted immunity? It means you can say whatever you want as long as it's the truth and you'll never get in trouble. And no one's crossing their fingers or crossing their toes. It's a real thing. When you are protected by a union and you are granted immunity from an investigation, you cannot be punished, period. So 23 players testified, gave their thoughts on what was going on with sign stealing, and they will never get punished, ever. Why would MLB agree to grant immunity to players? Well, if you're a fan of nothing personal, you know exactly why, because we told you. Because in order to punish players for stealing signs, you have to do it within the frame of the collective bargaining agreement. If you are trying to give them a stronger punishment, that has to be part of a grievance or part of a deal with the union, a pre-done deal. MLB was not going to take the time to negotiate with the players' union when their relationship is such a problem already. They've got a new labor agreement to deal with at the end of the 21 season. That's going to start now. They are fighting like cats and dogs. You cannot fight a battle on 10 fronts. I just heard that from Winston Churchill. You can't do it. There's no way MLB was going to fight with the union about suspending players. So here's what we do. We grant them immunity. They get to testify. We can then shut down this investigation, finish it. We'll hang a few executives out to dry, and that'll be the end. That's me washing my hands if the, if the microphone picked that up. We're going to wash our hands of this scandal. Of course, it hasn't exactly worked that way because people are furious. How can you allow for players to get immunity? Aren't they the ones responsible? But you've then opened a whole different issue for MLB. When you run a sports league or a team or a business, you can't just think of the one issue that's in front of you. Picture a stone. I always try to tell people this when I give speeches or when I give advice to people. I always try to explain the ripple theory. People thought they misheard me when I say it, so I repeat it. The ripple theory. When you drop a stone in the middle of a lake, there, the ripple effect means that you get a circle where the stone drops, and then another circle, then another circle, and another circle, and the circles grow. That's called the ripple effect. The reason I tell people you should always go to law school is what law school taught me is how to figure out 
what exactly all the ripples will be. It's almost like a chess game. You have to figure out what that lake will look like. What will be the problems that are born from the problems? What will be the solutions that are born from the problems that were born from the problems? What will be the problems that are born from the solutions that are born from the problems that are born from the problems that my mother bought for two zoosium? Oh, come on. Passover, anybody? Passover Seder? It's a great song. Point is this. MLB's job is they've got to keep track. They've got to think to themselves, if we have players testify and we don't have immunity, and they don't, A, they're not going to testify. Then we're going to have to do a protracted investigation. If we do that, we're going to find out the players did, in fact, steal signs illegally. Then we're going to find out that we've got to suspend them. Then we're going to get a grievance. Then it's going to be a few months until the grievance is heard. Take a look at Chris Bryant, all the Cubs fans out there. You guys have been talking to me about why this grievance hasn't been resolved yet because it takes forever plus four days. That's how long it is to do with these things. This is not what MLB wanted. Then MLB found out another tiny little fact that I don't believe at all. MLB in the article states, or it is concluded, that Jeff Lunau and the Astros got this important rules memo from Rob Manford which stated you may not use technology to steal signs. And the argument that the Astros made, the front office, is that they never told the players. So the players had no idea that it was illegal to use technology the way they were using it. Oh my God, are you kidding me? That is the biggest crock of crap I've ever heard. Every time we get a memo from baseball, the players know about it. The players knew that the Red Sox had been disciplined for using their Apple Watches. The players knew, and that was 17, 18. The Astros, every team knows exactly what's going on with sign stealing, with memos about anything, about gambling, about technology. Certain memos you have to post in the clubhouse in Spanish and English. It used to be just in English, and then it became Spanish and English. We would give them to the players. They would not read them and throw them away. We had to actually show that we were giving them to them, giving them these forms or give them these rules, like the gambling rules. Those are written out. Gambling rules, we actually have to read to the players. Little side note here. Do you know that gambling is such a big issue in baseball and it's such a big worry? Certain rules in baseball are just posted in the clubhouse. But before the first game of every season, we have to go into the clubhouse and have a full meeting with the entire team and the clubhouse staff, trainers, clubbies, players, coaches, and literally read to them the anti-gambling rules in baseball. And let me me just tell you, it's like, it's not a picture book. It's a long rule. The players end up laughing. It's like having class with a bunch of students who don't want to be there and don't care. But we actually have to read it to them because baseball knew that if you just leave it on their chair in the clubhouse, it ends up as toilet paper. If you just post it in the kitchen, it gets overlooked because they're watching the TV and eating food. So gambling gets read. However, as the president of a team, when a rule comes down from baseball that I think we're violating because I know about it and I know the players are involved, you think I'm not going to discuss with the players that we are in violation of a rule, so let's try to keep this on the down low so we don't get in trouble? But the Astros story, and they're sticking to it. 
They're sticking to it. Coca, have I told my sticking to it story on this pod yet? God, I feel old, but this is one of my great sticking to it stories. There was a writer for the Sports Illustrated before it became yesterday's news, before it was interesting. Sports Illustrated was a, uh, a magazine that actually was must-read. Every week it would come out. You'd want to be on the cover desperately. It was not online. It was an actual in the newsstand. And a guy named Rick Riley was a well-known writer. And at the end of every Sports Illustrated, he would write a little story. And one story he wrote I've never forgotten. It's been 30 years, I would say. And it's about the concept of sticking to your story. So there's a player. I think he was a football player, but it doesn't matter. He was an athlete. And an athlete comes home after a night of any sort of lascivious, prurient activity. Comes home, and his wife says, where have you been? You've been out all night. And the player looks at his wife, and he says, honey, I wasn't out all night. I fell asleep on the hammock in the front of the house. The wife looks at him and says, baby, we got rid of the hammock three years ago. To which the player replies, well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. This is when a studio audience would laugh, and I hope you're laughing at home. And I can only say that that happens more than you would believe. People come up with a story in sports as part of a PR strategy. There are holes poked in the story left and right, not by people like me, because we just started 59 episodes ago, but now it's getting better, because I'm poking holes left and right. And you know what's going to happen? Everyone's going to stick to their story. Every person will stick to his or her story, no matter what happens, no matter how much evidence, until it becomes so overwhelming, nah, they're still going to stick to their story. So the Astros are going to stick to their story. Hey, we forgot to tell the players. They didn't know. How would they know they're not supposed to steal signs? Give me a break. Well, Jim Crane has to finish what he started. And what he has to do is he's got to get his team together, organize an exact apology. You're, you're booing me because I didn't turn. This Coke is in my ear telling me to turn. I'm going to finish the quick Jim Crane story. Then we're going to review Mike Wallace. The end of the story very quickly is very simple, is that Jim Crane has to figure out a better way to get the Astros out of this because if he doesn't, this will haunt this team the entire season. And having the players apologize is the same as them admitting guilt. So you better hire a PR firm, and you better do some crisis management, get some talking points, and then meet your players and the leaders of your team, get some buy-in about what you're going to say, then get it approved by baseball, and make sure that everyone's on the same page. You answer every question. You don't do what Alex Bregman did. You don't do what Jose Altuve did. You don't do what Jim Crane did. You actually have an organized approach with real answers so then the media and the fans will stand down and focus on baseball. Now I'm willing to turn and do the review, Coca. Now he doesn't want me to. Can you imagine this producer, Coca? He's just like flexing his muscle over me. I'm doing it anyway. So I'm loving Oscar movies now. Sometimes I got to take a break. And I love documentaries. I want to review a documentary. And this is important. Um, given the demographic of my audience, I need to say a word about it. The documentary is called Mike Wallace is Here. Mike Wallace was an investigative journalist who died at the age of 93 in 2012. 
He's most famous for his interview of the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran while the hostages were being held in Iran in the late 70s. He's very famous for getting under the skin of those who he interviews. He was brutally honest and incredibly smart and able to interview incredibly interesting people and drive them crazy. Sometimes to the point where he would realize that he, the people he was interviewing actually loathed him. Barbara Streisand said the definition of hatred is the venomous hatred that I feel towards you as he was interviewing her for a piece on 60 Minutes. Well, a documentary came out called Mike Wallace is Here, and it's all about what is the role of a journalist and how has that role changed. And what I found fascinating about the documentary is, first of all, that people of the younger generation have never heard of Mike Wallace, which makes me a little sad. But third of all, fourth of all, I think I'm up to fifth of all, they're unwilling to recognize that there used to be a time when it was okay for journalists to actually press their interview subjects for information. Now what we do is we label journalists according to where they work. Oh, you work at Fox, you're conservative. Oh, you work at CNN, you're liberal. Oh, you work at one of the big three networks. We're not sure what you are, but we do know that you're not willing to take a lot of chances because it's too risky. You're too worried about Twitter or social media fallout. Mike Wallace stood there during an interview with reckless indifference toward what anyone thought. And guess what? He was willing to get sued, and he did. Remember General Westmoreland suing CBS? Well, I'm sitting here in CBS. The lights are still on. Obviously, everything's okay at CBS. But CBS 60 Minutes ran a story about General Westmoreland way back in the day, and he did not like it. He sued CBS, and it went all the way. And then suddenly it disappeared. And a settlement happened, a payment was made, and all was good again. But Mike Wallace was willing, and he had the backing of CBS, who had a backbone to allow for important stories to be told. Not like news magazine shows now that show the life and times of a crime spree. I'm talking about stories that matter. Stories like the Teflon story that's detailed in the movie Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo. We'll review that another time. In any case, this is a documentary. No matter your age, give it a try. Look at what it was when someone like Mike Wallace would take the screen and he could care less how he looked on screen. He never had a facelift. He was wrinkled, old, smoking cigarettes, and he was getting information that made a difference to the people. We miss you, Mike Wallace. You were here. You're still here. So I got some sleep last night, which is a positive thing. I was tired. Um... I love the, uh, the bonus pod. I appreciate that, that you all listened to the bonus pod we did on the Hall of Fame. That was my reaction. It's called, it's called an IA here in the biz. I never knew that word. Instant analysis. IR, instant reaction. The thing with instant is that that's now required because you all want instant. If it happens, you want to know about it now, now, now. Well, I like sleeping on things from time to time. <laughs> that totally came out wrong. And I woke up this morning with some thoughts on the Hall of Fame. Number one, why do people feel that they have a right to have such vitriol? 
I think that's the second time we're using that word in this show. To go after people who have an opinion different than themselves. What right do you have? Isn't the entire point of our country and freedom of the press and freedom of expression that I can think what I want, you can think what you want, and then we get to live together as long as I don't stop you from thinking what you want to think? One writer decided not to vote for Derek Jeter. He is now in the witness protection program. He's the roommate of Steve Bartman. I heard this. It's breaking. The writer who did not vote for Jeter is now living with Steve Bartman. Google it if you never heard of him, but you have. Why? Because he's being bullied on Twitter. People want to find him and murder him because they wanted Derek Jeter to be unanimous. So Derek Jeter was interviewed. And after the interview, during the interview, when asked about not getting the one vote, he had the perfect Derek Jeter professional answer that everyone in New York just licked up like a dog who hadn't had water in a month. He said, it's hard enough to get anyone to agree on anything. I'm just honored to have gotten the votes necessary to be part of this Hall of Fame class. Give me a break. What he was really thinking is, you're telling me that Mariano Rivera deserved to be unanimous and I didn't? He wanted it. He wanted that vote. We may never find out who gave that vote, and it's okay. If he wants to go public, let him go public. And it's okay to disagree with him, but let's listen to the reason. And I bet you the reason was sound. And I bet you may even agree with the reason. I bet Brad Penny and J.J. Putz don't care because they got a vote. Could that be the vote that could have gone to Jeter but instead went to one of the players who got one vote? We're never going to find out unless he goes public. But one of these days, you'll tell me why you have such vitriol. Just let it be, Paul McCartney. Other thing in the Hall of Fame. I loved Larry Walker's tweet earlier in the day where he thanked everyone. He knew he wasn't going to get in, and he said, I appreciate everyone helping me get into the Hall of Fame. I really do. And then, of course, he got the call that he's in the Hall of Fame. Do you know that's how players find out? They, don't, they get advance notice that they know before 6 o'clock, obviously, when we find out 6 p.m. They get a call, though, earlier in the day so all the media and travel can be set up because there's press conferences that will happen and all sorts of things will happen now. So they get told early. And when the call came in, Larry Walker, he was so emotional about it. And he was emotional because it doesn't matter if you make it by six votes. It doesn't matter if you make it in your 10th year or your first year. What matters is for the rest of time, Larry Walker is in the Hall of Fame, representing Canada, might I add, very deserving. I didn't have him in my ballot. I didn't have him as my prediction. I'm happy that said that he did make it. Hall of Fame is done for this year. We are definitely moving on. Oh, I love talking stadium financing. Um, we're going to spend a few minutes on this. And, uh, you know, one of my shows later, I think it'll end up being a bonus. We're going to talk about how we got a ballpark done and how you deal with public financing of a building, how you put a deal like that together. We'll talk about how teams get sold in very big detail. We got plenty, plenty of weeks, months, and years to do it. But today something came out that... Drew, Got my attention immediately. Dan Snyder is the owner of the Redskins. We've torched him, right, as owner of the Redskins. They've been completely unsuccessful. As owner, he has not, he has not done anything except make his team worth more money. 
as a businessman, as a former president of a team, that's everything. So I have great respect for that. As a fan of the Redskins, I would say I would not have great respect because we just haven't had performance. But owners do something very interesting. They stand up and say, very famous for doing I never did it. We stood up and said, we will not get a ballpark done if the public doesn't help pay. Just come right out and say it. Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins in this market, came out and said, I'm paying for everything. We're the anti-Marlins. Well, that's not exactly true. If you actually read these deals, the public is absolutely participating in these new stadiums. If they're not actually building construction using funds to build a stadium, they're using funds to help with infrastructure, or they're giving operating subsidies to a team. There's all sorts of ways because to a businessman, dollars are fungible. I can tell you that I'm paying all of X, even though I'm not, because I'm getting money on the other side that I can funnel right into that project. So Dan Snyder stands up and he says, listen, I don't want to play at FedEx Field anymore in Washington. I want a new football stadium. And I'm willing to pay for it myself. So now everyone says, wow, epic. A NFL owner willing to pay for it himself. Well, I could also mention there's an entire stadium building fund that the NFL has which gives distributions to teams to help build stadiums, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the fact that he said, I'm going to build the stadium myself, but everything in life, this is a good life lesson, everything in life happens after the but. So when you're having a conversation with someone and you're talking to them and you think you're making your point and then they say, I see exactly what you're saying, but what I don't understand is blank. Everything that matters happens after the but. In a conversation, might I add. I'm going to build a stadium here in Washington, Virginia, Maryland, somewhere in the neighborhood. But I need gambling in the stadium. I need gambling wherever I go, whether I go to Virginia, if I stay in the district, or Maryland, anywhere in this area, I need gambling. So yesterday he was meeting with the powers that be in the Maryland legislature, and he was trying to convince them to allow him to have in-stadium gambling. Now, why would he need gambling? Oh, that's right. Because he knows what he wants is exactly what happens in the EPL. Where you go to a soccer game in Europe, you're watching Liverpool play against Manchester City, and you are gambling right there next to the kiosk where you get a damn hot dog. You're literally with your friend. You're waiting. You see two lines. What do you do when you see two lines? Hey, you wait here. You wait here. One line is, I need two dogs, six beers, two vodkas, and a bag of peanuts. The other one is, I need Liverpool by a goal. I'm willing to give two for one. I'm taking Dedane, Zendande, Zimbabwe to score in the first 20 minutes. I'm taking an over-under of three goals. Oh, by the way, don't forget the catch-up. That's what's going on inside EPL stadiums. And just so you know, that's called revenue. Because when you gamble inside a stadium, guess who's keeping part of the action? Yes, the stadium. Guess who owns the stadium? Yes, the team. So Daniel Snyder telling you that he's going to build the stadium by himself. Let me tell you something, residents of Maryland and people who are going to go see the Redskins. Every time you make a bet, every time you buy a seat, a hot dog, anything, you're paying for the stadium. 
Trust me. Anytime you hear people say, I'm paying for it all myself, but pay attention to the but. There's going to be a lot more on this Dan Snyder story, but for today, what is known is that if you're going to put gambling in the new Redskins stadium, watch out. There will be gambling coming to your ballpark, to your arena in the next five to ten years. Not a wait to see, but there is going to be gambling in stadium in the United States of America. Okay, we are up to, this is a special part of the show just now because the Super Bowl is coming up. I do the Super Bowl edition of a pick of the day, and this is just all about the um, prop bets. In the Super Bowl, we get all these props that you can bet. You should always bet them, but I've got a system for what I'm doing, and you're going to catch on. Yesterday, we gave you that the prop should be on will the team who scores first win. I said no, and we got some action, like plus 150 maybe. Today, I got another prop for you. These are so funny. Can you imagine people sitting around thinking of these? Will the opening kickoff be a touchback? (laughs) That's awesome. Will the opening kickoff be a touchback? Well, listen here, you degenerates. Take the no and take the plus 165. The yes, you have to lay 240 to win 100. What happens if they want to get a run back and they just kick it to the one? You're down 240 before you start. I'm saying take the plus 165. Think about this with these first two prop bets. All you need is one of the no's to happen, and we're ready up money. Prop number two, day two of the Super Bowl edition pick of the day. Will the opening kickoff be a touchback? Nah, I say no. All right, regular pick of the day. You remember, God, we made a big deal with Ruben yesterday. Remember we brought Ruben on set, and he had to pay me my dollar? for the Celtics-Lakers, his girlfriend's dollar. He posted a video on Twitter. He's the Sneaker King. I think that's his handle. Give him a follow. He's got some interesting pictures of sneakers. I'm not exactly sure how he gets them, but I'm not going to ask. I gave him the pick last night. I said, take Duke, give the 17 and a half. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't bet the dollar because he knew he'd lose. Duke won by 40. I'm hot, so I'm going to stay hot, and I'm going to go against the grain here. Um, Zion Williamson's coming back tonight. Zion Williamson is the number one pick of the NBA draft. He was one of my wait to sees. He missed more than eight weeks. And uh, he's going to play today. The question is, does that make the Pelicans a three-and-a-half-point favorite over the Spurs? Well, because Zion is debuting, that is an inflated line. They should not be favored by three-and-a-half. I'm taking that three-and-a-half. I don't think you realize the mentality of a team when they get back a star and how they have developed a way to succeed, not that they've won a lot of games, but to succeed in an offense without that star, and then he comes back. And it sort of changes things because they start genuflecting in his general direction. They start sort of acquiescing to the demands of where he wants the ball, how he wants the ball. It changes the flow. But in this case, Zion is a rookie making his debut as a National Basketball Association player. It is on national television. It has basically, he is being asked, Zion Williamson is, to save the ratings decline in basketball. Put it on his six foot nine, 285 pound shoulders. I doubt he's 285 after this layoff, but we'll check him out live and in person. My guess is he's getting up there with three bills. All of that said, a lot of pressure for him. I love the Spurs. Take the three and a half. Wait to see. 
Jeter wasn't unanimous. I got it wrong. I admit it. I told you he would be. I thought the Mets would hire Hensley Mullins, their bench coach, maybe Eduardo Perez, who came in second. Wait to see, I said. We waited. We saw, and I was wrong. Last night, we saw Marcelo Zuna get a one-year deal with the Braves. Marcelo Zuna turned down a qualifying offer with the Cardinals, $17.8 million. He didn't settle. He ended up signing with the Atlanta Braves, settling, I guess, for a one-year deal. Fair enough. Nick Castellanos is the last major free agent. He does not have a qualifying offer associated with him. He will not have to settle for a one-year deal. Wait to see. Nick Castellanos will sign a multi-year deal, maybe only two years, but a multi-year deal because he does not have a qualifying offer associated with him. Marcelo Zuna, you learned a critical lesson this offseason that if I were with you, I would have taught you. And you know now, in baseball, with money, it's all about business, Marcel. It's nothing personal. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 